0: Today, one in three Americans are suffering from health effects of obesity and diabetes due to poor nutrition. This is why Real Good Foods is on a mission to improve the lives of millions through nutritious foods that are high in protein, low in carbs, and made from real food ingredients. So being very candid with y'all. I definitely associated frozen food with being, frankly, either kind of gross and or just not healthy for me. And so when I got the chance to try Real Good Foods, I was honestly very surprised and pretty delighted by how easy and tasty it was and how good it made me feel because it's made out of real food ingredients. So you can visit realgoodfoods.com and at realgoodfoods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code Pluck Up 15. The link is in our show notes. And stay tuned for my review later in the episode. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns in the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they also share with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring. Inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Today's guest is Sarah LaFleur, who is the founder and CEO of MM LaFleur, a women's workwear brand that she launched in 2013 that then grew to be a multi-million dollar brand and the darling of the direct-to-consumer fashion world. I am so in love with this story of how Sarah, one, really struggled with these big existential questions that many of us find ourselves asking, especially early on in our adult lives but hopefully, honestly, throughout our vocations and careers. Sarah also shares her experience of being biracial and her struggle to really embrace that complexity. She is so honest about this pretty dark season in her life, about her early flailing and failing attempts to start and launch and get her own brand up and off the ground, which kind of honestly flopped, but how she gained this, like, wild sense of freedom during a season of being kind of at rock bottom and this sense of freedom that was spurred on by rock bottom actually led to the innovation that really ended up launching her company forward I mean come on pluck yeah y'all I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did Sarah, I am so excited to have you on the show. Really looking forward to hearing more about your story, which is already very interesting on paper. So I know getting behind the scenes a little bit is going to be a real treat for me and of course for our listeners too.
1: Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you for having me. I can finally say I was on the pluck-up once. So
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. You're officially a plucky. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your background. You had a unique growing up experience. We'd love to just kind of set the stage by telling us a little bit about how and where you grew up. Sure. Um,
1: so I'll start by saying, so I'm biracial. My dad's American. My mom's Japanese. And my dad worked in the State Department. He was in the Foreign Service for, i say, almost 40 years Long time. Wow. And so we moved around a yeah. lot. Um, basically it means that, you know, every three to four years he had a new assignment. Um, so wow. I was born in Paris, France, which, you know, I'm not French, um, although I do consider it my birth country. So so that uh, so okay. I was born there. So and question, then we,
0: if you're if your parents are in the foreign service and you're born in a different country, do you get citizenship? Are you a dual citizen of that country or do like different rules apply to, if
1: you're, you know, different rules apply. And I think typically your diplomatic status would prevent you actually from having citizenship. Okay. It does actually, however, mean that I can still run for president, even though I was not born on American soil. Not All right. That I'm ever going to do that?
0: But <laughs> you never know. You'll get really bored in retirement, and it'll be really fun to think about running like, for yes, French president. One thing yeah. I've always wanted to do. Um,
1: so anyway, so there. So, uh, but I do have Japanese citizenship, and I actually spent the good portion of my childhood growing up in Japan. My okay. mom, actually, my parents still live there. My sister still lives there, um, and uh, oftentimes my dad would get sent on these missions where they didn't necessarily, my parents didn't necessarily want to take me and my sister abroad as well. You know, you also end up switching schools a lot and whatnot. So yeah. we ended up living in Tokyo for a good chunk. And then we often lived with my grandparents. Okay. So I was, I was very close to them growing up. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, I spent a couple of years in Washington, DC during my childhood, but really aside from, from those two years, I got to know America as an adult. So I came here hmm. for okay. college and then, um, I think, you know, you, you will understand that I have like perpetual wanderlust. So um <laughs> I then went back to France for a year after school. I went to South Africa for a year. I've moved around quite a bit, but New York has now been home. I want to say, actually, I think I'm hitting my tenure. I've been in New York now consecutively for 10 years, which is the longest I've ever lived in one place. Um, and, uh, I've, let's see, I, I've married my college sweetheart. It feels weird to say that because I think weirdly we did not consider ourselves yeah. like each other. We like that senior year and we're like, ah, this is just oh. going to be a, like a short fling. Um, next thing, you know, uh, you know, we've been together for, for, I guess, 15 years now and we've got, oh, we've got three gosh. babies and a huge dog. Um, so, so that's me. That's me in a nutshell.
0: I read that when you were growing up in Japan that you, you know, I guess this is the nature of being, probably both a biracial child and a child who was raised, well, not really raised, but kind of went country to country, that when you were in Japan, there was the sense that you didn't want to use your dad's last name because you didn't want to be, like, identified as an American?
1: You know, it was, um,
0: I think, actually, it was my parents who probably chose to have Hmm. me use my Japanese last name.
1: And so in Japan, there was no record, even in my passport, it doesn't say LaFleur. It just says um, Miyazawa Sara. in Japanese, you read your last name first, first name, okay. uh, second. And I think that was actually, you know, to your point, I got to, you know, quote unquote pass for being Japanese because I had a Japanese last name. And yeah. I think when people looked at me, I know it's a podcast, I would say like, <laughs> I don't look a hundred percent Asian. And so people were like, hmm, this is kind of weird. Like, is she Japanese? Is she not Japanese? But her last name's Japanese, so she, like, at least part of her must be, you know, truly Japanese. And, you know, Japan is, this is a topic for a whole nother day, but struggles with its own problems of racism, even though a lot of people think of it as a very homogenous society. There are a lot of Korean Japanese people, Chinese Japanese Mm. people who are second generation, third generation, Mm. sometimes even longer, who have yet to gain Japanese citizenship because um, their parents were not Japanese. And so I think my parents, you know, being aware of some of this kind of racism that happened. And also I went to a traditional Japanese school and it would have been very strange for me to, I think, not have a Japanese last name. Hmm. And so I went by that. Um, but I think like a lot of kids who grow up in, in different cultures, I, I I got really good at kind of culture shifting. And so yeah. I took a lot of pride in Understanding American culture and watching Nickelodeon, mm. you know, for the mm. few years that I lived in Washington D.C., and I wanted to bring an American lunch. Whether that meant like bringing a sandwich, you know, I didn't want to bring my Japanese lunchbox to my public school in Washington D.C. And then when I went back to Japan, I wanted to score high on um, the. Japanese uh, characters are, are Chinese mm. characters, so that I wanted to score really high on the Chinese character exam, and so I can truly prove my Japaneseness, if you will. Um, I think you know I was very bad at being bicultural. I, I really mm. wanted to be one or the other, and and um, mm. and honestly, I just like didn't have a lot of. I don't even want to say role models, but I don't. I don't remember being surrounded by a ton of kids who kind of you know had both cultures um, be very representative of who they were.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's probably a really consistent, not having a model is probably exactly what it is because it is a unique upbringing and that kind of switching back and forth. I will say we've had so many guests on this show that have had, um, and so I'm starting to develop my own theory, Yeah, frankly, that there might be, I mean, the amount, proportionally the amount of people that we've had on this show who have grown up in two different cultures or who were born in one culture and then moved to America there, it's too high. There's too many that <laughs> there's they, starting to be kind of a thread of like, there has to be something. Um, that is happening or that you learn or something that gets instilled in you if you have this experience at, at a young age. And so I'm curious, is there anything about your life today, anything that you've accomplished or or how you've kind of designed your life that you could tie back to, like, I wonder if this experience as a kid of kind of switching and going back and forth, being an outsider here and an insider here and then flip-flopping, can you tie that to anything in your, like, adult existence? Oh, I
1: love that hypothesis, and I want to say it must all be true. <laughs> um, I want to be a good role model to the next generation of of kids coming up. But, you know, I think the one thing I will say is I, I think you get really good with things being in flux. The ambiguity is does not scare hmm. me. I've yeah. always been okay with not knowing where things are going. And I think if anything, I kind of thrive off of it. And so I, I think maybe that, that adventure spirit, um, hopefully plays into some of it. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you also get really good at making friends quickly. Um, yes. I love, uh, making new friends and, 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 uh, I think friendships are, I mean, we could talk about the startup life. But friendships are, are kind of what keep you sane through, throughout the craziness of it all. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I wonder if, you know, it's like we think about like scary situations as an adult, you know, like walking into a room of investors and, you know, pitching your deck and like being, you know, this situation that feels really scary. But also like being a 16 year old girl trying to walk up to a closed circle of other girls who have been friends since they were in kindergarten That is also scary. Like, I think if you can figure out how to do that, like, you're fine in other areas of life. Then you're like, okay, we're good. I've done that before. Like, I do wonder if there is like a resiliency um, that gets built really early on to those uncomfortable situations that you learn and just kind of build that muscle memory of like, I've done this before, I've felt these feelings before. It it wasn't the end um, that then later in your life kind of allows you to to maybe even subconsciously take on new challenges without being quite as dominated by kind of your fear and anxiety around the what ifs. I,
1: I completely agree. You actually just reminded me of kind of two stories. One, when I moved to Washington, D.C., I was in an ESL and I remember someone came up and asked me to spell my last name. I think it was the lunch lady and I like didn't know how to spell my last name. And I still Mm. remember being like mortified about that, you know? And, um, and then conversely, when I moved back to Japan, you know, I was the new girl to exactly the situation you were talking about and kind of, um, being at the bottom of the social totem pole and, you know, dealing with bullies and whatnot. Like you learn those things really, really quickly when you're entering
0: into all these new situations all the time. So I think you're, you're totally spot on with that. Hmm. Okay, so you grew up in Japan, you spent some time in D.C. Tell us a little bit about your kind of early adulthood journey. Um, so
1: I thought I wanted to go work at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees because one of the graduates from this—I uh, went to an all-girls international school in Tokyo for, for high school— She was the first Japanese woman and I think first woman period to become Hmm. the high commissioner for UNHCR. Anyway, I just worshiped her. I just thought she was incredible. And, you know, it's funny talking about homes and moving around, but I really thought like, wow, like working with refugees is something I could see myself dedicating my life to. So, um, I thought I wanted to go be a logistics officer in a refugee camp. Um, And I went to college still thinking that that's what I wanted to do. I ultimately had an opportunity to go, uh, work in a refugee camp in Zambia. And it was indeed a life changing experience. And I think what I walked away with was this like profound knowledge that I was very underprepared, very unknowledgeable, very unable to just get the minimum level of things done. And hmm. the level of need was so high. Hmm. Liz, I know you spent time working in impoverished areas in Uganda. So I'm sure you can relate to a lot of this. I would have on a daily hourly basis, people coming to me saying, Hey, um, I have AIDS. My wife died. I don't have food to put on the table tonight. Like, can you help me? And... I think I just became profoundly aware of how little I could do for them at the time. Mm -hmm. I struggled with that guilt a lot. And I also, I think coming back to my senior year of college, um, was suddenly kind of faced with the fact that all of my friends were getting their first jobs, um, Mm -hmm. for post-college life. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do here? Am I going to go back to Zambia and potentially not be able to do much? Or am I going to go work for a company in America where there is a salary and benefits and potentially I'll learn something? And I think if I'm being really honest about it, there was a lot of the allure to having a real job especially coming back from that like incredibly professionally unstable and like personally existential kind of, I'm going to go as far as to say crisis because I spent, you know, many a night crying about it uh, Hmm. and and not really understanding my place in this world. And so you could say I made a deal with the devil. (laughs) And uh, actually, I do remember talking to somebody who's saying, I, I see myself going to work in international development one day, but in order for myself to get there, I know I need some skills. And so I I chose to go and work at this management consulting firm, or I chose to go to law school, or I chose to, you know, fill in the blank. It was some sort of basically training ground or stepping stone. And I ended up doing exactly that. I, I ended up, um, working for a management consulting firm out of New York city, um, Kind of thinking that hopefully my path would eventually take me back there, which which it kind of did. Not not in the way I, I am doing it today. But um that was that was like my early twenties, that that journey of trying to figure out, okay, I think this is my calling, but I'm not quite sure how I'm gonna actually fulfill that in, in yeah. any sort of meaningful way.
0: I'm curious now being a season removed from that, and that, you know, your that being a, a period of your past. I'm curious about if you could go back and just sit down, have a 30 minute coffee date with, you know, 20, 21 year old Sarah. What would you, what would you tell her? How, how do you kind of reconcile and how do you think about that season now? I think the
1: first thing I would say is, yeah, you're right to cry because the struggle is real, Mm. you know? And I think a lot of the advice that people tend to give young people is like, oh, you have all the time in the world. Like, try everything, make all the mistakes. And like, I mm. I love that advice. And I also want to say, it's okay that this is a struggle because yeah, you should th- be thinking hard about what it is that you want to do with your life. Like, why yeah. wouldn't that be? cause a crisis in a person.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting and really good. I, I do. I think we live in a culture where we so despise uncomfortability. We despise sadness. We despise angst that we are very quick to kind of say, and I even catch myself doing this. You know, I've, I, I know we're both mothers. I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a baby baby. But for my older kids, I so often will catch myself. They're crying about something that's like, oh, my gosh, I served your goldfish upside down or whatever it was, you know. <laughs> And it's I'm so quick to be like, it's going to be fine. This doesn't really matter. And really like trying to catch myself to honor, like it doesn't matter to me, but in their like three-year-old brain, this was an important thing. This is a disappointment. I'm just so quick to usher them out of uncomfortable feelings and thinking about how we do that to adults. And I love your point of like, I think it's easy to look back on our younger selves and like roll our eyes or be like, oh my gosh. I mean, I feel that way that I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so so angsty Mm. like so angsty in my last few years of college and in grad school this question of like who am I yeah and why was I put on earth and what am I good at and what kind of life do I want to build I mean spreadsheets and endless conversations and tears and vision boards and it's it's actually quite easy for me to look back and be like oh bless her like she didn't (laughs) know that it was all gonna work out But I really want to go back and honor her. Uh, And to your point, say, like, these are big questions to be wrestling with. And, you know, in your experience and in my experience of being exposed, you know, earlier on in our career to some actual real suffering in the world and honoring the distress and the confusion that that caused, as opposed to like, oh, bless, like, I'll never forget the first time I came home from uganda um my then i guess he would have been a fiance ish right after. <laughs> <laughs> i can't really remember the timing but we went out for a nice meal and you know we were broke like just out of school and so going out to a nice meal already felt kind of indulgent and i'm i love cheese i'm like a, i just i'm a cheese lover and so my sweet boyfriend partner fiance whatever he was at the time before our meal, ordered the cheese platter. And the cheese platter was like $14 or something, which at the time felt like an exorbitant, you know, when you're a broke, just post-college person, you don't order the cheese platter. And he ordered the cheese platter and the, you know, like waiter goes away and I literally just start, I just burst into (laughs) tears. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, you love cheese. What do you mean? What am I doing? And I'm like, just weeping because I'm like $14. That's, two full courses of anti-malarial medicine. Like, and I, you know, in these like images of knowing that it's like what $14 can do in Uganda and we're just gonna like spend it on indulgent like cheese. And these, and every time I came home from Uganda, really for the first couple of years, just this like kind of massive internal struggle that again, it's so easy to look back on because now it's, you know, it's become so, a part of my life that I don't cry over the cheese plate anymore. And it's easy to look back at that girl and go like, oh, bless. You just didn't know. Sweet little, sweet little one. But instead, like, you know, there's that quote, I don't know who said it, that it's like, if you're not upset, maybe it's because you're not paying attention. (laughs) Like they're actually like these emotions are very appropriate emotions. Maybe we're broken by never, ever, ever even having the thought of what fourteen dollars in a developing economy can do. Like who's to say that the girl bawling over the cheese plate and the restaurant is the but one that's messed up. Yeah, exactly. First, Ooh, yeah, like, exactly. what if she is like awake to the world? I first of all, I haven't actually had this
1: conversation. I think ever in this like new decade of my life. My, my so mm. my equivalent was a glass of wine and exact same story. Bawling, actually, I think we're for spring break. Uh, we went to Acapulco, like literally half the class went to Acapulco, all 700 of us descended (laughs) and we went to some club. Anyway, my then boyfriend, now husband, I bawled and I could not stay in that club any longer because I was like, I cannot actually stomach what, what I'm seeing here versus what I also know to be happening 12 hours away by plane.
0: Okay, so listen, I just tried the green enchiladas from Real Good Foods because when they approached us to sponsor the show, I was going to try it first because y'all know I'm not going to share something with you that I don't actually believe in. So I tried these enchiladas and people, I was pretty surprised. First of all, to be honest, I do not buy frozen meals. I haven't since like I was in college because I kind of just figured they were all either a little bit gross or packed with fake foods and things that don't nourish my body, But I tried out these enchiladas. I was very delighted by how they tasted. They were super flavorful. And even the texture felt like substantial and real. Like the shredded chicken was real shredded chicken, which by the way, it is antibiotic free also. And it took me like four minutes to make. So just win, win, win. And now Real Good Foods have actually made it to my real life grocery list for times when I need something that's quick, tasty and healthy. So thank you, Real Good Foods. To learn more, you can check out realgoodfoods.com and at realgoodfoods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code PLUCKUP15. The link is in our show notes. So you have this like really life-changing experience where you are exposed to one of the most probably concentrated areas of human suffering caused largely by inequality and oppression and, you know, extreme poverty. And then you go and in your next step, I think, right, is like working really in kind of the upper echelon as far as it relates to kind of privilege and wealth and power. And I'm curious, tell us a little bit about how did you go from one to the other and what was that experience like? Um, you know, I think
1: I was so terrible at my job the first year that I was so focused on just not plucking up <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, I just remember being at the office on Thanksgiving day and the day And what Thanksgiving. will you tell our
0: listeners? What was the, what was the, oh, job? what was the
1: job? I was working at Bain, um, as a management okay. consultant for those people who've never heard of it. We might've heard of McKinsey. They work with like a lot of Fortune 500 companies really to they're brought in often to solve some of their biggest challenges. And I think intellectually, it's a really, really interesting job. I think as a a first year associate, as we are called, you are there to kind of do whatever needs to be done. And I think having come from this world where thinking I wanted to go work in the nonprofit sector, I was completely not business trained. And I do remember, like in my early training, I raised my hand and asked, "What is EBITDA?" Which is like (laughs) earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Just wanted to make sure I could still say that. (laughs) Uh And I remember the manager said, "That's right. Ask all your stupid questions now." And I was like totally mortified. And I think that was kind of my initiation. And so I had no social life. Like I was still with my boyfriend, but like I think we saw each other. I don't, if we did at like 2 a.m. when I crawled into bed and I kind of just focused on the job. It was just a training ground, um, for me. Uh, and like I never went to business school. So really, you know, the tools that I got to run my business mostly
0: came from my time at Bain. Hmm. Um, so I'm very grateful for that, but definitely not an easy experience. And so tell us a little bit about when you were in it, did you know it was a training ground? Were you like, this is not where I want to be for the rest of my life, but I'm learning valuable skills and I'm here I'm here to get an education. What was kind of your like narrative for your life's purpose at that time? And how did you feel in that job? Honestly, I was too tired to think that mm. much.
1: And mm. if I'm being totally honest, I think like I was so focused on like, how do I get through the week? Sleeping pretty minimal hours. And I think I knew from the get-go, okay, this is not, you know, like I don't see myself becoming a partner here. But at the same time, I was also really surrounded by people that I liked. Like actually Mm. some of my closest friends are the people that I've met at Bain. The woman who officiated my wedding is my colleague from Bain. Mm. My first investor in my company was one of the partners that I, I met at Bain. And so I think it was just like, I'm in training camp mode. Hmm. And okay. it, it really wasn't until like the end of my second year when I started to, you know, get my groove and I, I wasn't so terrible at my job anymore that I, I began to think about, okay, what's next?
0: Okay. So then after consulting, you went and you joined a new firm, correct? Uh, after through
1: consulting, yeah. I first went and worked for a nonprofit um, called TechnoServe um down in oh, South yeah. Africa
0: and then and then I came back and and joined a private equity firm. Yeah. Okay. And tell us about your time in private equity.
1: Oh, well, it lasted all 4 months, which is probably okay. where I'll start. Um it was hard. It was um it was my dream job in many ways, which sounds so crazy um in the context of everything we've talked about. But um I think I found the content of what Uh, this particular firm was doing so fascinating. And I think, Mm. you know, if I can draw like a common thread here, although it's a very, I think a very thin one I'm interested in, I was always interested in spaces uh, Mm. and and this particular private equity firm happened to specialize in in real estate. And so I I got what I thought was my dream job working in this private equity firm uh, and helping companies turn around or grow even bigger um but you know i think to make a very long story short um culturally it was uh not the right place for me and i think after mm. you know i talk about being like it was i mean it was very hard work wise but i talked i think also the people were so wonderful and you got a lot of good training and in some ways you're you're really coddled even though it's like the last thing you feel like when you're there um but you really are protected and sheltered from mm. a lot of the kind of craziness that often exists in corporate America. And I think when I joined this, this private equity firm, I felt like I couldn't cut it there. Um, Mm. so I left very quickly. I think I I gave my notice within four months and and was out, um, two weeks later. Wow. Uh, I was so broken. I think by that, Mm. that experience, by that job, uh, that I I really felt like a shell of myself, even though, Mm. you know, the actual time that I was there was, was quite short.
0: So you were in this place where you had just quit a job, your supposed dream job. Yeah. After being there for four months, you were feeling pretty broken and unsure of your next steps. And then what happened during that time of like, this is what you described to be a pretty dark season?
1: Yeah. I mean... I was watching a lot of TV during the daytime, which is like, <laughs> it's like, you, like always a good sign. I know exactly. I like when I start watching TV during the daytime, like I know, <laughs> I know I'm depressed. Like I just need to stop. <laughs> so I was doing a lot of that. I mean, I I was in recovery mode. I think, um, I, wasn't quite sure where my career was supposed to go. I, I thought about applying to new jobs, but I was so afraid that nobody was going to hire me because I was like, my resume is a disaster. Like who's mm. ever going to hire me? Mm. And at the time I was like, nobody's going to hire me. So I'm just going to have to start my own thing. If I'm being mm. totally honest, like that's yeah. how I felt. And,
0: um, wow.
1: and that is kind of That is the origin story
0: of
1: that. I started because no one would hire me. Yeah,
0: I love that. (laughs) I think that there is something so powerful about like, it's so bad. It's so bad. The prospects are so dim. I think that there is a sense of wild freedom that comes when you feel like you've hit rock bottom, that there is this sense of like, you don't what do you have to lose? That it's just like, I feel like I've got this weird resume. I'm not going to get hired. Everything that I thought was like my dream job, my dream life, I've tried it. I either failed at it or it didn't turn out to be what I thought it would be. Now, all of a sudden, the illusion that you have so much to risk that's keeping you from doing the thing Actually, it's like the charades up. I don't actually have that much to risk, which I believe is a more accurate picture of where we all truly are. Like, I think that we overestimate when we think about risk of like what we have to lose. And so often it's like so hyperbolic and not logical that there can kind of be a gift of freedom that comes when it's like, actually, what do you have to lose? Um, Can give you a sense of freedom to do something that maybe prior to that sense of like, I've hit rock bottom might have felt too scary
1: it's so true. You know, this life could have gone so differently. I think what I did, I also applied to business school, which I, and, and I got rejected. Um, mm. And uh, I think had I gone to business school, I would have never started MM. MM. Had I liked private equity, I would have never started MM. I started this company from the lowest place of professional confidence you could imagine. Mm. Professional confidence and, and also like personal confidence, because I mean, in my twenties, really like My professional self was my personal self.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So 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 how did, so you're in this, you're watching a lot of daytime television. You're feeling really (laughs) bad. You're depressed about your life. How does MM start?
1: I I, I had this idea that um, workwear could be done better. Clothing for women who work in corporate settings could be done better. And that idea had been with me for a long time. I just thought it was something that either I would do when I was like in retirement or you know, it wasn't a job that I would seriously pursue because I didn't have an interest in apparel or fashion. I just, you know, this is, and and maybe that's not fair. I I like fashion, you know, just as much as the average woman, which isn't to say like a whole lot. I I care about looking good personally, but I don't care about what's happening on, you know, the fall runway of 2022. So I think it started really as an idea. And and I think the other thing I also realized that I really liked doing was I love textile. So I found myself spending a ton of time in different fabric stores, just like touching mm. and feeling fabrics. And I think my mother had worked in high-end fashion, but not as a designer. She was always on the the marketing PR side. Um, And so I think through her, I got to see and touch these clothes that she would sometimes bring home and I would see how well they were made and the cut and the fit and just how beautiful the tailoring was. And so I just kind of from the get-go knew, all right, this is not my expertise. So if I want to start this business, like I actually need to bring in someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to fashion. So I ended up talking to a headhunter who was someone I met through a friend of a friend, who ultimately introduced me to many people, um, uh, many fashion designers, uh, which sounds crazy probably, but this one guy really took a chance on me. Um, Mm. his name is Jed Ardito. I am still in touch with him and I Mm. owe him really like, you know, my business, but he introduced me to Miyako who became my co-founder and my chief creative officer. And, you know, 10 years later, we're still running this business together.
0: I know enough to know that you didn't just like come up with this idea and it worked right out of the box. So will you tell us a little bit about your journey of launching and kind of what your first season of launching this company looked like? Yeah. Uh,
1: You know, in the very beginning we just started with trunk shows because even though everyone was like, Oh, e-commerce is going to be such a thing. Online is going to be such a thing. I just felt like, okay, I got to pick my battles. And my first battle is product. Like I just want to make really incredible clothes. And we decided to start with dresses because I think of dresses as kind of, you know, it's the adult onesie. You put it on and you don't have to worry about whether it mixes or matches with anything else. And so Miyako and I decided we would we would launch with a, a line of seven dresses. And we it took us about a year to design them, um, to source the fabric. We begged this factory in the fashion district in New York to make samples for us, you know, it, which it might sound like a strange thing, but like, you really have to beg people to, to let them pay you do work. Um, it is wild. I have been there before. Yes. (laughs) Right. You're like, please take my money. Like, I don't care if you're swindling me. I just need product. Like, so, um, anyway, we got a sample in each size for the seven dresses. And then we started hosting these trunk shows in, mm. in random hotel suites, in friends' apartments. And then we would get these orders. And then we would place them. And, and actually the turnaround was pretty fast at the time because we were just doing them locally in the city. And then I would rent a zip car and my other co-founder, Nuri, and I would drive around in a zip car and she would jump out of the passenger seat and drop off the dresses and then get back in the zip car again. And that went on for about a good year uh, before we finally were like, okay, we should try we should try launching our website. And so we launched our website in 2013, which we consider the official you know, founding of M.M., And uh, it was really, 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 really hard to find Hmm. scale online. Um, You know, it it continues to be hard today, but I think especially in 2013, it was like the Ecom 2.0 era where we parker and Everlane had just launched uh, maybe a year or two before that. Um, It was still a pretty nascent time. And especially like the idea of selling products that cost, you know, I think our dresses were $295 at that time online without trying it on. It was a really Mm -hmm. tall order. Mm
0: -hmm. And so we
1: ended up launching something, uh, actually, which we don't even have anymore, but we called the bento, um, Mm. where customers could come to our site, fill out a brief survey about herself. So she wouldn't order actual products. She would just tell us information about herself, And based on that, we, um, the stylist, would decide which products to put in her box and then send it to her. She had four days to decide what she wanted to keep, what she wanted to return.
0: And And this really was, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read this story, it seemed like this was really done out of things are not selling. Like it's not going well. We have like a glut of inventory. We need to figure out a way to move this product. What's like a creative way? to just get product in people's hands. Yeah. And then you like kind of reverse engineered this like cool, clever way to get people to sign up. Is that, that right?
1: That's totally right. I mean, I think basically, a, I, I want to say like 10, nine months into launching our e-commerce store at memoflare.com it was like we were getting like seven boxes out a day, you know, eight boxes. And I was just like, this business is not scaling, you know, where,
0: where yeah. do we go from here? Yeah. There? Yeah. um, But I love it because it kind of honestly feels like maybe a thread in your story is hitting these like kind of not great places, like kind of these rock bottom places, which, again, can feel like such a bummer, obviously, but also create kind of a sense a freedom. Like, I wonder if your business was doing okay. Like, let's say it was like, it wasn't like quite meeting goals, but you were like, you know, trickling along if there would have been this sense of like, we can't do this is crazy, like sending people out product without having them pay for it, like they haven't even actually bought it, we don't want to mess up like a good thing. Like, I kind of wonder if it took you guys being in a spot where you were like, Ooh, eight orders a day, eight months in, this is not great. Yeah. Like things aren't going well to kind of give you the freedom to do something really creative. I wonder if again, it's out of that sense of like, at this point, what do we have to lose? That's so true. Um, You're very good at weaving the narrative,
1: (laughs) which I didn't even like think of. It's so true. I'm just moving from like one obstacle to a next. And you're like, there's a theme here. There's a theme here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that's really true. Uh, It was kind of this make or break moment. And like, I will also caveat this with like, our team, which I think it was around 10 people at the time, like my CMO and I really wanted to try this idea and everybody else in the company was just like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And I would never want to buy clothes that way. And so it didn't just feel like, okay, let's just try this out and we'll see what happens. It felt like my team was like, well,
0: Sarah's officially lost her mind and like, let's see if this, okay, this is so good. Now here's the part in the show where I'm just going to get selfish and I'm going to say, sorry, listeners, this is for me. I'm asking these (laughs) questions for myself. Hopefully it benefits you as well. I'm really curious because I have been here in in times in my business where same thing, man, when you don't feel energy, the biggest shift that we ever made as a company is we went from being kind of a direct to consumer brand to a direct sales, like multi-level marketing company. Yeah. And at the time, when we started selling through ambassadors, the team buy-in was really split. Their founders were like, this is it. This is what we were created for. We're going to make an impact, not just for women in you know Uganda and Peru and Ethiopia, but for women here in the United States. And we're going to connect them in these really meaningful relational ways. But we had we it was hard. It was hard on the team because it was like, well, I signed up for this other thing. I signed up to be a wholesale company and to go to trade shows. And now you're talking about something. And so you have this moment as a founder, as a creative, whatever it is, where you feel pulled in one direction. You might not have buy in from your team, which, by the way, if you're not a founder, I think sometimes it's easy to look at, quote unquote, the boss and they feel like invincible or maybe like they don't have feelings or they're not real humans. And like, that's a very tender, vulnerable place to be in <laughs> where we we had we had an employee leave and she was kind of on she was on the like wholesale side of things, which is going to become pretty irrelevant in our business, who literally was just like, this is the stupidest thing you guys have ever done. <laughs> and I would be lying if I said at the time, like now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that actually like was the growth engine of our entire company and has been probably the best thing that we've ever Ever done but you don't know that at the time like right so when that person says that or you hear through the grapevine that they said that you want to like play confident and be like i'll show you but inside if you're actually like a real human there's a real part of you that's like it might be <laughs> like you might be right <laughs> like, this she, might be right. this might be dumb too. yes Right. So I'm curious about how you navigate, because as a founder and as a creator, I so highly value, you know, my my team knows that I always say, like, feedback is a gift. Feedback is a gift. Like, listen to your market. Listen to your customer. Ask the difficult question. Don't be trying to solve a problem that nobody actually has. Right. So I'm curious about how you how did you differentiate between I have this vision and holding to it and being really brave and carrying it forth even in the face of a lot of doubt and skepticism while also being really aware and willing to listen to other people and to your market. How do you tell the difference? How do you know when it's like my customers don't even know that they want this? I have to invent it for them versus like I really need to listen to my market here and if it's not a problem or people aren't interested in this, I need to kind of back away and let this idea die. Yeah, gosh, That's such a good question. I think it boils down to
1: like, are you going to regret it? Mm, Interesting. Because there's nothing, like I could say like, well, you should look at the numbers and like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But like, ultimately, like, it's actually, it's funny you talk about customers because like when we had initially, I think our team that was against this idea in order to show us that it was, in fact, a terrible idea, basically decided to do like a focus group with our customers, with our existing customers. And they were like, oh, this is stupid. I don't get it, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, see, even the customers don't like it. And ultimately, that wasn't the group of customers who ended up taking up that service, right? Like it was a whole new group of customers that we could attract. Wow. And the size of that Mm. addressable market, was much bigger than kind of the one-off customer that was willing to shop our products untouched, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say sight unseen, but basically, you know, without really trying yeah. it on. And I have to just say, like, I think my CMO, Annie and I, at the time, we we were just like, no, I feel so strongly about this. And if I don't mm-hmm. give it a try, like, I will regret it. Like, and I think there was also going back to your point earlier, like it couldn't get much worse. Right. So it was like, what's yeah, the worst yeah. that's going to happen. Oh, eight orders is going to yeah. become like zero orders. Well, you know, right. Like we Ooh. weren't making that much yeah. money anyway. Um, yeah. And I think like one thing I don't lack is, um, it's kind of just like the urge to just try something. Yeah. I'm pretty unafraid in that respect. Um, So I'm happy to try everything once.
0: I think that that's something, especially even for our listeners that aren't founders or they're not starting companies or they're not doing focus groups or listening to their market, I do think that there is something to be said for everyone listening to this show. I think one thing that humans do really poorly is weigh the perceived risk of trying something against the opportunity cost of not trying it. Like, I think we heavily, heavily weigh, what if I try and I fail? And what we don't weigh nearly heavily enough is like, but what if I don't try? Right? Because that requires a lot more imagination. We're so conditioned to ask about, well, if I do this thing, what if it fails? What if we lose money? What if this kind of okay thing that we built like dies? What if they say no? What if I fall on my face? What if I embarrass myself? And that what if, the kind of like negative, cynical, critical, what if, worst case scenario, doomsday takes up so much space in our brain. If you struggle with anxiety, which I do, Congratulations. You could say I have anxiety. You could also say I am a very imaginative person. I have a lot of creative (laughs) mental energy. I could come up with a lot of scenarios before they exist. Like I actually think it's an amazing you're living in the future and you're living in the future with a negative spin. Right. So it's creating all of this anxiety where if we switch it from like, oh, my God, but what if to like, but what if? if. And then we let the wonder and the imagination and the possibility of what could possibly be created and what could come in the future. And we weigh missing out on that as heavily as we weigh the potential of like messing up or failing in the future. I think we would make really different decisions. I I completely
1: agree. You know, and I I think in your you're saying like because you kind of experienced rock bottom, I think, again, like I put it in quotes because You know, I live in America. I'm very lucky. But like actually going back to, you know, I live in America. I was a tutor actually for the two and a half years that I was trying to get this job off the ground. And my husband, then boyfriend, was a dog runner. He decided he was going to run dogs rather than walk them because Hmm. he could make more money per per hour. There you go. he was working on his novel. And I was just like, you know what? Like I can always go
0: back to waiting tables. Yep. So I think you're totally right. I was like, what's the worst that can happen? Yes. Right. Uh, Yeah. I think we had Liz Gilbert on the show in the very first season and this has stuck with me and I've repeated it so many times where she really credits the creative leaps and risks that she was able to take. She had been a bartender for many, many years and she was like, listen, I know how to tend bars. I know how to make money. I know how to live cheap. And it just by having that like skill, was it her dream job? No. Was she living everything that she want it? No, but she was like, I can, I know how to do it. I know how to do it. And I know I'll be okay. Gave her this sense of, so I can take risks Yeah, because the worst thing that happens is I go back to being a bartender and I've already done that and I know how to do and it, it wasn't too and it's going to be okay. Totally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh my gosh. I love that. So tell us, so your team, it sounds like the majority of your team was not on board with the idea, but you and your co-founder decided to move forward. Yeah. And then what happened? What happened in the first week that you launched this uh, bento box stylist approach? It
1: was amazing.
0: I mean, we made more money in that one week than we ever had in any <laughs>
1: month leading up to it. It was It was unbelievable. I think we were like kind of in disbelief just because it was so obvious. It was so clear in the numbers. You know, it wasn't like, is this a success or not? It was like, whoa, this is like really taking off. Yeah. And, you know, that was such an incredible time. Hmm. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. I think it was late 2014 going into 2015. But um, I think the other kind of just general lesson that I always take with me is like, we rode the wave. Um, you know, we weren't technically mm. a subscription box, but there was definitely a box boom happening. And yeah. at that time and yeah. place, we were really at the right place at the right time. We, mm. we rode that wave so beautifully. And, and our company mm. scaled from, I think we were doing like, you know, 300,000 the first year to like 1 million to 8 million to 30 million to 60 million. Just kind of like, it was that that crazy scale that we got to take advantage of because of everything that was happening around us. Yeah. And I, I, I will say, like, I've fully experienced the opposite end of that too, right? Like, I am in mm. the, the market of, of selling to women who have jobs outside the home. And mm-hmm. guess what? Not a lot of people were working outside the home last year. So, um, yeah. it was so hard and it continues to be hard. Although, like, we have thankfully, um, You know, the business has turned around significantly. We're doing much better. But, like, it was so trying.
0: And I think I I really got to experience both sides of that coin. And what is that? I would be interested in knowing, especially during the down seasons where it feels like you're riding the wave that is not going in, in your direction. What does that look like for you to separate yourself from the thing that you've created, enough to maintain a sense of kind of not having your own kind of self-worth and identity wrapped up in, like, how your business is doing?
1: Um, I will say, like, it was very hard for me. It still is hard for me. My last name is in my company's name, right? So it's like, who was Sarah LaFleur outside of Emma LaFleur? Like, I I think for a long time, if you had asked me that question, I would have said, I don't know. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. at the very beginning, we were talking about friendships, but, like, when I was feeling really, really down on myself a couple of years ago, and I would say I was suffering like a form of depression. One thing yeah. I just started doing is I just started calling my friends whenever I had 15 mm. minutes. And like, I yeah. used to just check my email, right. Or I used mm. to just mm-hmm. respond or do an extra item on, on the to-do list. Um, and I think that just kind of reminded me of like the world beyond me yeah. and myself, I will also say like now I have kids and that that has a weird kind of forcing function in that like yeah. you at some point, you got to stop worrying about um, whatever's going on because that, like someone's hungry.
0: But um, I love that. It's so true that it's like it's so easy to get caught up in the whether it's kind of the more like existential like what are we doing and what's our purpose and what's the impact that we're making in the world or the business and the numbers and kind of these macro theories and I, that's one of my favorite things about being a mom is that it feels like five o'clock hits and my kids run through the door, I go pick them up and all of a sudden the world gets so small. For just, you know, and it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, okay, we need, okay, yes, you can have peanut butter or like, okay, (laughs) yes, we're like, I see that bruise that you got. Let's talk about it or tell me the story of that dinosaur magnet that you made, that there is this beautiful rhythm I find that is kind of forced upon you in parenthood of kind of I go from like during my days, it's like big, 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 big. And then it gets small in the most like beautiful way in a way that actually like prepares me for the next morning of, like, being able to expand again, that before I had kids, I just always lived in this space. There was no, like, contracting. And I find it to be, like, a very beautiful, life-giving cycle of almost, like, sustainability to kind of constantly be going from contracting in and out.
1: I I think that I I completely agree. And hopefully it also makes me a saner boss. Um, (laughs) Just, like, a slightly more... um, full uh, of a person. And I don't think it just has to come in the form of, of kids. I you know, I mentioned friends. It could easily yeah. be a hobby. Um I just I don't happen to have hobbies. <laughs> Work is my <laughs> hobby so like here here I am. That's not true. I but love, I to love read. it. I love to take baths and all of that. It just didn't make, give me this like sense of fullness, I think. So.
0: I love that though in the midst of feeling depressed and feeling down on yourself and feeling like your identity and worth was tied up in this thing that you had created, though, that you intentionally, I have this vision of you just like creating tethers to this bigger world that you occupy and this bigger identity that you have as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, as a community member, as a mother, and just intentionally reminding yourself of that, because I think it's like relationships are like anything else. Like if we don't cultivate them, if we don't water them, if we don't like create time for them You know, one of the things that I love to say is like, if you want to build a life on purpose a life of purpose you're going to have to do it on purpose like it doesn't accidentally happen and I think community and relationships are the same thing that it's like we have this very unrealistic expectation of community and friendships um, that they just like magically appear and they exist and they should be easy and fun and it's uh, my experience is that like great relationships like you have to prioritize them and you have to reach out and you have to put time on your calendar to say like this matters to me and I'm going to give myself to this thing Um, if you want to create something of depth and beauty. And it sounds like in the midst of a really hard time that that's exactly what you did.
1: Yeah. It was such a, it was such a, an escape, you know, and I'm grateful for them. I think they were also the ones to first call out that I was depressed. I like didn't even Mm. see it myself. You know, I was just kind of like marching, marching, marching. And they were like, that's so good. Right.
0: That is so good. When we've cultivated friendships and community where they can see things in us and call things out, um, that we might not be able to, in ourselves exactly. I think that's so good I also don't know If you've ever had this moment But like Most of my really Really best girlfriends Are not business people At all mm-hmm. And so it's so funny Where they'll like Say or do something I'm just you know Like you know Making an example up Of like I'll say a number And let's say in my head I'm like it's obvious I'm talking about 10 million dollars But I'm just gonna say 10 or whatever You know we'd have to go out And raise at least 10 and like having your very non-business friend be like, oh, like 10,000 or like 10 or, and you have these moments where you're like, you don't know and you don't care. Like I, you are so uninterested totally. in my revenue, in my EBITDA or like we live in a really close community of friends here in Portland. We live on what we call a, an urban commune. And so we literally like, we share property. We like have this, you know, home mentality. We raise each other's kids. We share all of our stuff. We share finances. We do life. I see these people every day. And literally like three months ago, I was in the backyard with one of the guys in our little commune. Yeah. and he he said something about the fact he's like, "Oh, cool, you have a podcast." And I was like, bro, I see you every day. Like I walk into your home six times a day. I am co-parenting your two daughters with you and you're like, oh, that's cool. You have a podcast." And then like moves on to the next thing, that it's just amazing. like. They, and, and, you know, it would obviously be it would be easy to be like, oh, you don't know that about me. But I actually love it that I'm yeah. just like my value to you as your neighbor, as your sister, as your friend, as your like community member is it's just really like I could have 10 listeners or 1 million or no podcast at all. And like that actually doesn't influence how I you see me in the context that. of this community and relationship. It's
1: so true. It does take time, though. And, I you know, what I'm noticing now in my 30s and in my late 30s now, I guess, like, I find myself in in a place of, I think more people are coming to me for help. It, it could be the smallest mm. thing. Like, it could be an issue in, in the apartment building that I'm living in or um, hmm. a friend who is going through infertility uh, because I, I struggled with that for a while, too. And I actually just had someone reach out to me because of my connection to the kind of international relief world. And it takes a lot of time. And I used to kind of be upset about it because I was like, Mm. I'm really bad at saying, no, I don't establish boundaries. Mm. Like, you know, I already have, you know, my job as CEO and mom and, you know, wife, sister, blah, blah, blah. Like my plate's full. And I used to get upset about myself for that. And then I realized like, I actually get so much energy out of being able Mm. to kind of like help other people and and Mm. be there for them. And like, God knows, like maybe it wasn't those exact people, but a lot of other people were there for me, for example, when I was like looking into yeah. IVF for the first time. And it's just like this great cycle of of karma. And so I know that like setting boundaries is all the rage these days, but like mm. I'm actually kind of wondering if I'm, I'm moving in the opposite direction where I'm like, you know yeah. what? I will, it actually is fulfilling for me too to have like some portion of my life that is just like Sarah who maybe can like give back in ways small and tiny
0: Uh, Sarah I love that I think that there a a phrase that we use a lot in our community is this idea of staying awake Mm. that it's like you don't have to say yes to everything but I completely agree I think we have gotten to a place in our culture where we are so uh, and I'm none of these things are bad in fact they're really great I think things like self-care and things like boundaries are really healthy and they're really meaningful But if you go too far with them, I think it puts you in a posture of just being asleep to the world and to the opportunities, to the miracles, to the needs, to the relationships that might be right in front of you because they don't slot in to the things that you said that you would, you know, say yes to. I had a friend not that long ago, just a few months ago, I was working through like kind of. Wanting to stay awake, wanting to stay available to, you know, in in my worldview, it would be to like, what, who are the people and the things and the causes that like, that God's designed me for and that he, and, the, and that the divine is calling me into to stay awake to because I don't want to be somebody who's just like, mm, nope, that's not my priority. Sorry. Or, oop, nope, you're not my favorite person. So I'm not going to be in relationship with you. And she described it as she gave me this word picture of my boundaries being a velvet curtain and not a brick wall. Ooh. And that has truly, really stuck with me because what I love about it is that it's still real, that it still is like, I have to have boundaries. I have to have an idea of how I'm orienting my life. Like I have to be faithful to the things that I'm saying yes to. So there is this curtain that it's like, it can't be everything. Yeah, But like leaving there a little bit of room, for that curtain to move or to sway or to open unexpectedly in a different way where I'm like, okay, I wasn't planning on this. This isn't on my list of priorities. This wasn't something that I would say yes to, but I'm feeling this spirit, this nudge, this whisper towards like, but say yes. Like open yourself to that thing. Um, don't become so rigid and so boundaried that you know you become somebody who I think Ends up becoming asleep to the world and not awake to both the miracles and the mess around us.
1: Um, that is such a beautiful way to phrase it. And Velvet Curtain, I'm gonna take that with me. I'll
0: attribute that to my friend who I don't even know if she listens to this oh, podcast. That was, my, that, to was my that was my friend. That was my friend, Lindsay Patton. I don't even know if she knows that I have a podcast, but Lindsay Patton gave me that word picture oh, and it gorgeous. has been something that has I really stuck with me. So thank you, Lindsay. Sarah, thank you so much. I could honestly keep talking for another hour. This was such a delight. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Of course, I know you've already gone over with us, but I really appreciate, really appreciate your time and your insight and sharing your story with us.
1: Liz, I feel like you are are part therapist, (laughs) part yogi, part (laughs) podcast host. This has been most delightful. I feel healed by our hours.
0: Oh my gosh, that means so much to me. I love connecting and you've been a joy to connect with. So I'm so glad that this was life-giving and energizing for you too. Thank you so much. (laughs) This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit LizBohannon.co or follow us on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon and they're at Human Group Media. And if you got a passion for fashion and doing good in the world, you can also check out my day job, Seiko Designs, that's S-S-E-K-O Designs on all the social medias. And you can find all of our work at www.seikodesigns.com. All right, that's all. We'll catch you again on the next episode. And until then, stay plucky.